The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for this time. We thank you for this weekend, God, for what an incredible um, amount of truth, Lord, um, that we get just an opportunity to meditate on your goodness and your glory, your kindness to us, and the way that you meet us in the most complicated, um, even the most complicated moments of our lives and the lives of those around us. God, as we talk about this concept or area of mental health, God, will you grant us wisdom and insight, Lord, clarity, um, even if we cannot have the omniscience understanding that only you have. Um, God, we confess, Lord, that we can't. And so we, we don't strive to, but we strive to understand what we can know and what you have told us to know and pray that you will help us to do that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to be talking about mental health, right? The gospel and mental health. And I, you know, I assume, even just from you choosing to be here, that uh, I don't need to throw out any statistics for you to realize that mental health and mental illnesses are really one of the biggest issues facing us in almost any ministry context. Um, I just, as, as we get started, I mean, for those of you who, you probably have no idea who I am, I, my name's Scott, I'm a pastor in Los Angeles, on the west side of Los Angeles, kind of the Santa Monica area. I've been there for 13 years. It was a church plant 13 years ago, and the Lord's just been um, gracious to us over that time. It's really for us, it's home. We love the city, we love the people in the city. You want me to be louder? All right. Actually, I think they can uh, turn it up a little bit. That'll help. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I love being, we, we love being there. Um, I have a wife and four kids. They are 12, 10, seven, and six right now. Um, so some pretty fun, sweet ages. They can all tie their own shoes and none are teenagers yet. So we got like a sweet spot. No, no, no offense to any of you teenagers. Um, but the, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a, a fun time. Is that okay? The better, maybe better. Okay. Um, but as we, as we dive into this, um, I mean, I, I assume that you care about mental health because you care about people. And this is one of the categories in our world that we hear um, a lot about. Um, I assume, I will also assume that you know someone close to you who struggles with mental health, whether it's you or people close to you in your lives, because that is the reality of life in a fallen world. Um, that, that's why I got involved in counseling and really mental health generally. Uh, I've had family that have struggled significantly with mental health. When I became a pastor, I saw the huge amount of need around me, just people hurting, people struggling in all sorts of different ways. Um, people like Tyler, who was reeling after getting out of prison and racked with guilt and shame and insecurity and discouragement. People like Lisa, who battled depression all through college and then found it almost unbearable after graduation. People like Rachel, who all of a sudden developed obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviors for the first time in her life as a mother of three and trying to figure out what in the world is going on. People like Brent, who with an addiction to Oxy or any other substance he could get his hands on in his 70s. People like my kids who have their own quirks and weaknesses and strengths and difficulties. People like 
My mom, who battled for years with severe depression. People, my, people like my dad, who left his family because of a lack of joy. Right? People like me, because I struggle with all sorts of insecurity or anxiety or anger or fear. Right? Mental health is, affects all of us. But one of the interesting things, and maybe one of the most interesting things about mental health is we can talk about it and the world talks about it a lot. And it's an incredibly popular kind of label thrown around and that everybody cares about. But I'm not even sure you know what I mean when I say mental health. And I'm not even sure I know what you mean when you say mental health, right? It's this like epidemic but we all kind of self-identify what falls into the category, like what qualifies, what is, and I think that's where we need to start, is by asking the question, what is mental health? Maybe it's a little bit, maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit loud, I think it's feeding back just a little bit. Um, I'll just touch and we'll be all right. Um, but, and so, when we ask the question, what is mental health, I think we have to ask, what does it mean for us to be in that sense, mentally healthy, right? What, 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 does, that, what does that entail? If you bring it down just, yeah, just a touch, perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk louder, that's perfect. And that way it's not, not, not actually ringing here. Okay, um, well, so where, where do we start, right? Well, if you open up your Bibles, you're not gonna find it. <laughs> right? Right? So if you look for mental health, the phrase mental health, it's not in the Greek, it's not in the Hebrew, right? You're like, what am I, what are we, where does that, fr-? so we have to figure out, first of all, we have to ask, where did the phrase come from? Right? Where did this concept of mental health come from? And it, it, it's one that's utilized in our culture, right? It's a cultural conceptualization in the, the world that we live in as a whole, so for us, I think one, one place we can start is the Department of Health and Human Services of the United States government, mentalhealth.gov. It's a great place to start, right? You're going to Google mental health. It's going to be one of the first places to come up, mentalhealth.gov. And, it, and it, mentalhealth.gov defines it this way. It says mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. Okay, that's the, that's the phrase, well-being. It's our emotional, psychological, and social well-being, and it affects how we think, oh, those didn't, those didn't look pretty, sorry, in the transition over. It's behave or thought to, so it's okay. I know, it's horrible, you see? All right, it's all right. But, it's, it, it, oh, it looks pretty in your notes though, right? Yeah. All right, all right, we're gonna run with that, all right. All right, wait, you're, you're your, it's mental health includes our emotional, psychological, social well-being, and it affects how we think, how we feel, and how we act. Okay, so from mentalhealth.gov, mental health is this internal well-being that shapes your thoughts, your behaviors, and your emotions. This internal well-being that shapes your thoughts and behaviors and emotions. Now, the National Institute of Health, which is also a government agency has a similar but slightly different um, uh, vocabulary for definition. It's the National Institute of Health 
defines mental health this way. It says mental health is a dynamic state of internal equilibrium. Okay, so it defines well what what the National Institute or what um, the Department of Health and Human Services calls well-being. The National Institute of Health calls internal equilibrium. Okay, so this, there's this internal equilibrium, this dynamic state of internal equilibrium, which enables individuals to use their abilities, think behaviors, thoughts, and emotions, in conjunction or in harmony with the universal values of society. It's interesting. The universal values of society. Mental health, then, he says is defined by an internal equilibrium that allows what comes out in your thoughts, your actions, and your emotions to be consistent with the universal values of society. We'll be talking about that, that more. I mean, I think the implications are obvious, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. But it says, and then it, and then it goes on, it says, important components of mental health which contribute in varying degrees to states of this internal equilibrium. So this is interesting. What are the components that contribute to the equilibrium? How do you bring about the equilibrium? It says, the components include things like basic cognitive and social skills, thinking, thinking skills, Ability to recognize, express, and modulate one's own emotions. So emotional skills, abilities, as well as empathize with others. It's an emotional ability. Flexibility and ability to cope with adverse life events and function in social roles. So behavior skills. You're able to. You have this ability to function this way. And harmonious relationship between body and mind. So essentially, what it's saying is, and, and this is prettier in your notes, but the, that we have certain behavioral thinking, cognition, and emotional skills. And if you have those skills and abilities, or you can develop those skills and abilities, then those skills and abilities will bring about the internal equilibrium that brings about your thoughts and behaviors and emotions being consistent with the universal values of society. I mean, this is fascinating for a number of reasons, but not, not least of which because this is different than you, like, took a blood test and, told, and were told whether you were healthy or not, right? That's not what's going on here, right? Mental health does not function that way. Mental health is, is fundamentally different than physical health. They are not the same thing, right? They contribute to one another. They have, they, they have interplay, absolutely, but they are not the same thing, and they, don't, they, they aren't even analogous to one another. They're not even measured the same way. Mental health is, is, is measured by this internal equilibrium. It's after well-being. It's the immaterial you. Yes? I'm not sure. I'm not, sure, I'm, not sure why they, I'm not sure why they use that. Um, I think specifically because they're, they're essentially saying that the things that the most of us agree on, like that's what's consistent, right? If, if most of us agree that killing somebody is like an inconsistent behavioral value, then to, then to kill somebody is, means you're mentally unhealthy, right? But again, right, we, we'll, we'll, we'll get into some of the dynamics of, of the problem. But, what I want to point out more than anything is that these are both after, oop, oh, here. These are both after 
the same inner person. There's, we have well-being or internal equilibrium or what Hinduism or Buddhism call inner peace or what Hebrews called shalom, right? These, aren't, these are all the exact same thing. This is what mental health is talking about. It's talking about an inner peace, an inner equilibrium, an inner well-being, right? An inner consistency that produces behaviors and thoughts and emotions and that, it, that, that needs to be or experience equilibrium. In the New International Dictionary of the Old Testament theology, uh, of theology, it, it quotes it this way. It says, in a, it, when talking about shalom specifically, it says, in a material or secular sense, shalom designates, look at the word it uses, well-being. Shalom designates well-being, prosperity, or bodily health. It also expresses the state of mind or internal condition of being at ease, satisfied, or fulfilled. Internal equilibrium. In fact, sometimes the ESV translates the Hebrew word shalom as well-being. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make shalom. I make well-being, the ESV says, and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And so we're going to get to the claim that it is the Lord who makes well-being in a second, but what I want us to see is that mental health then is talking about something that is actually very close to, well, not very close to, is in, specifically in the realm of what we're talking about when we're talking about biblical counseling. Right? It's talking about the inner man, the dynamics of the inner man and how that functions. Now, we're going to talk about how that relates to all of the, the outer man and things like that as well. But even from its own definitions, mental health is about internal well-being. It's about internal equilibrium, this inner peace or shalom. So the question asks, wait, wait, wait. Okay, if that's what mental health is, what about mental illnesses? Right? How do we think about mental illnesses then if that's mental health? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that, that mental Illnesses, then, are simply saying that something is off in your mental health. Which means that mental illnesses are different than physical diseases. Now, physical diseases can contribute to mental illnesses. They absolutely can. Mental, physical diseases we know about can contribute to uh, mental problems. Physical diseases that we don't know about yet may contribute to mental problems. They absolutely, right? There's physical diseases that 300 years ago nobody knew about that impact how we think, feel, and act, right? So we're not at the pinnacle of knowledge at this point, right? So there absolutely may be physical illnesses that contribute in certain ways to the way we think and feel and act, but that doesn't mean that what, is, what are typically called mental illnesses are diseases. And, and this, isn't, this isn't even a controversial concept. This is broadly accepted in the medical community. Now, it's easier to talk about them like diseases, but they're, they're not diseases. Stephen Stahl, uh, who wrote uh, a, a 
textbook, a psychopharmacology textbook called Essential, Essential Psychopharmacology. If you have been to medical school, chances are probably better than not that you used his textbook in the portion of your education learning about psychiatry. And in his textbook, it's a big old textbook, he writes, mental illnesses are defined as mixtures of symptoms packaged into syndromes, right? So what mental illness, what we call mental illnesses are actually syndromes. They're, they're, they're a bunch of symptoms that we drew a circle around in order to call them something, right? That's, that's, what, what, that's what they are. He's, and he, he writes, thus, mental illnesses are not diseases. Mental illnesses are not diseases. And this is where I think in the research community and in the medical community, it's not controversial to say that, medical, that mental illnesses are not diseases. I think in a scientific sense, the fact is they're not. They're not even claimed to be. Um, now, in popular culture, we like the analogy of them being like diseases, and then it loses its, its um, it loses the kind of analogy portion, and we begin to call them, we begin to say that they are diseases. But mental illnesses and mental health, and we're talking about something different than we're talking about physical health and physical disease. Mental health problems are essentially that which is produced when people don't have inner well-being. They're the things that are produced, the problematic things that are produced in life when people don't have internal equilibrium. But the reality is you can't, if we're going to take a disorder, and even the mental disorders that we talk about in our world, you can't define a disorder correctly unless you know what health is correctly. Right? Like, unless you know what the goal is, unless you know what health is, you can't say that something's unhealthy, disordered, unless we have a clear definition of what health is. And so we need to know first, what is true mental health? What is true well-being? What is internal equilibrium? What is true inner peace? What is shalom? According to the National Institute of Health, like we look at, it's something that is contextual to the universal values of society. But if health is determined by being inconsistent with the universal values of society, I mean, you see the fundamental problems with this definition, right? Whose values? Right? Who gets to pick? And what happens when the universal values of society change? Well, we've seen it over the last 30 years. There's not even a debate about this. What happens when the universal values of society changes, the definition of what's healthy and what's unhealthy change as well. Right? And this happens in every culture. What's, what we define as problematic and what we define as healthy ch continues to change. I mean, and, and we could, I mean, we can talk about, we could talk about some of the past ways that this has happened. We could talk about some of the ones that are coming. Right? Like whether or not sex with robots is unhealthy. That question's coming in the next 10 years. Right? Whether or not it's okay to be, to, to have more than one spouse. Those questions are here and they're coming in the next 10 years. And, and, the, and the universal values of society are going to be redefined and therefore the definition of whether or not Sex with a doll or a robot is healthy or not is going to be determined by, not by whether it's actually good for you, 
Not, not by whether it actually is good for your soul, but whether or not it brings about actions, behaviors, thoughts, and emotions that are consistent with the universal values of society. I mean, one example is Albert Ellis. Some of you may know Albert Ellis. This is, I mean, to look back a little bit. Albert Ellis is probably the, probably the most influential psychotherapist since Freud. He's the, he's the grandfather of cognitive therapy, which is not only the most scientifically studied form of therapy, but probably the most widely used form of therapy today. And in 1983, what is that, 35 years ago, he wrote, devout belief and religiosity distinctly to contribute to and in some ways are equal to mental and emotional disturbance. He said, believing in, devout belief in God contributes to and in some ways is synonymous with mental disturbance, mental unhealth. Why? Because health reflected his values and what he believed should be the universal values of society. He was on to say, while unbelief, skepticism, and thoroughgoing atheism not only abet, but are practically synonymous with mental health, he wrote. Atheism equals mental health was Ellis's concept. Now, the universal values of society in the 60s, in the 30s, in the 80s, in the 2020s, all are going to pass judgment on whether or not Ellis himself was healthy or not. And the ter determination of whether or not he was healthy is, are going to be determined on the universal values of society. Right? All, it's always up for grabs. So, who, so what do we use? Do we use Ellis's values? Or given our culture's high value of religious tolerance, do we consider him unhealthy? And is that the problem? And the point is simply this. And the point I want to make is this. We can't just take the definition the world hands us for mental health. We can't let the world around us define what mental health is. Because it does define it, and it defines it in ways that are inconsistent with the biblical worldview. Now, does the world see certain things? Absolutely. Right? Are there things that we would agree with the world's Judgment? Ab absolutely. But we can't just say, okay, yes, biblical counseling, this is for Christians, and this is for your spiritual life, but then, I don't know, maybe he has a spiritual problem, or maybe he has a mental health problem. Doing so adopts and gives the world the authority to say, you know what, you have an authority to determine what's healthy and not that is outside of the authority of Scripture and of God, what God says about his world. There are inevitably going to be aspects of the world's definition of mental health that overlap with a biblical definition. There will be, right? Because people are observing God's world. But there will also inevitably be aspects of the world's definition of mental health that are at odds with how God defines human flourishing. No matter how keen the observer, their observations and to an even greater extent, their interpretations of those observations will inevitably be impacted by the fall and their worldview that doesn't account for the variable of an omnipotent, loving creator and savior and the reality of our sin. Now, that's not to say that all people's struggles only have to do with sin. 
but it is to say that the world just doesn't have a category for the significant contributor that is our fallenness and that is the beauty of a omnipotent and glorious Savior and Lord. So I think it begs the question then, what does and what should a biblical understanding of mental health look like? What, what are we talking about? Well, let's, let's start with, with this. What, what, let's look at some common problems, emotional, behavioral, thought problems that we would consider, at least generally consider, and even that our world would generally consider mental health problems, right? Pride, selfishness, right, to the extreme, Depression or loneliness, we'd be like, yep, that's a problem. Fear, anxiety, it's one of the most significant things we would call a mental health problem. Restlessness, discontentment, anger, social deficiencies, right? These are the types of things we're like, oh, look, look, there's anger here or there's social deficiencies. Like you just, we can't relate to one another. These are mental health problems. Negative obsessive thoughts. Right, whether they come in the form of voices or things that you just can't get out of your head that continue to come back over and over and over again, right? We call those, yeah, intrusive thoughts, exactly. Call those uh, mental health problems, laziness, undependability, right? When it's brought to an extreme, we say, nope, that's a mental health problem. Aggressiveness or harshness or addictions or compulsive behaviors. Right? Addictions, that's a mental health problem. Compulsive behaviors, right? I just have to do this. Right? We, we call it a mental health problem. I think these are some of the key symptoms that make up the most prevalent and recognized mental health issues in our culture. We say that these are the things that, are, that define us as not having well-being or, or internal equilibrium. Right? If, we have, if these things are going on, then it's because we don't have well-being. Right? We don't have this internal equilibrium. And so... We say that these things, and so we look for the skills or the interventions to address these issues, right? If the problem is emotional, we look for behavioral and cognitive skills to address that emotion. If the problem's cognitive, it's a thinking problem, we look for behavioral or emotional skills to address those thoughts. If the problem's behavioral, we look for cognitive, for thinking or emotional skills to shape and direct that behavior, and certain skills can be helpful, right? They, they absolutely can be. If you develop certain behavioral skills, that can help impact how you feel, right? If you address, identify certain emotional skills, that can direct and help constrain how you act. But ultimately, the question is, so, so, so the question isn't, do the skills bring about a change? Or do the skills help? I think we could say that there's tons of skills out there that help. Right? There's behavioral skills, like, like visualization or just breathing. Right? My, my, my wife, um, I mean, maybe you won't be surprised by this, but on LA freeways are a little crazy. <laughs> and like, there were a number of factors some, a number of factors that we know, and probably even others that we don't know, that contributed to her on the freeway one day having a panic attack. And she, after that, she couldn't go past that part of the freeway without having a panic attack. And then eventually she couldn't get on the freeway without having a panic attack. 
right? And so, and there's all sorts of different factors, and this isn't about like what it was, but there's all sorts of things that could help her practically, right? Uh, you know what? One of them is like breathing techniques, right? Breathing techniques can totally be helpful, super helpful for her. Visualization, right? Would you like, like visualizing and practicing both in her mind's eye and with me driving and her in the passenger seat, like visualizing herself driving? Be helpful, right? There's all sorts of different skills and abilities that can be helpful. The question, though, is do they bring health? Something can be helpful, but it doesn't necessarily mean it produces genuine health. Can skills actually produce genuine well-being? Can they produce what's needed for us to be internally whole? Interestingly, I think when we look at this list, what's most fascinating about it is these are all things that Scripture speaks directly to all over the place. Not only all over the place, these are all things Scripture speaks to in one particular place. In Galatians, we see that the fruit of the Spirit is, oh, this isn't working. Look at that. Those should be next to it. You get the point. Is it on the handout? Oh, are, are they typed in there? So you see, yes. So you see, right, on, on the handout, right, pride and selfishness, the opposite of which is love. And this, it's the fruit of the Spirit that produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Paul says that genuine mental health, internal well-being, is not the fruit of skills or external forces, but ultimately it's the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. This means, I believe, that what produces real, what we call mental health, is the real presence of God's Spirit through the gospel. And why shouldn't it? Right? God created our souls. Right? God created us. He knows. Our, he created our minds. He created our brains. He created our bodies. He created it all. Of course, the only way to achieve health, to achieve genuine well-being, to, to achieve equilibrium that produces in all the different areas of our life comes from Him and listening to and knowing Him. As Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53, right? Isaiah 53, like the famous Isaiah 53, in, chapter, in verse 5, he says, But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom. Here it's translated peace, well-being, what we're after. And with his wounds, we are Healed. It's with his wounds that we are brought into healing and health. Scripture assumes this need for redemption. It assumes that every one of us starts in a place of unhealth. That we are all in problem. And this is, right, this is one of the lies that the world loves to portray, is that most people are good. Most people are healthy. Most people don't need anything. But sometimes things go wrong, and you get a mental health problem. Scripture doesn't teach that, right? Scripture teaches we all have problems. 
And some of us are better at masking them and coping with them than others. But we all have problems. We all have inner problems. We all have the ultimate problem, and it manifests in all sorts of different ways. Scripture affirms. And so Scripture affirms all over the place the, the, the fact that our behaviors and our thoughts and our emotions interact. We see that all over Scripture, right? Our behaviors affect our thoughts and our emotions. Our emotions affect our thoughts and our behaviors. That, that's, not, like, that's not cognitive behavioral therapy. That's just like observational common sense, right? And biblical truth that, of course, like all the different parts of us interact with one another. Scripture also affirms, just as all modern psychology observes, that all of those problems in our thoughts and our behaviors and emotions come from somewhere deeper, Right? This, is, I mean, this is what mental health, I mean, this is fascinating. One of the assumptions of mental health is that your problems come from somewhere deeper. It's one of the assumptions in our culture. And with more clarity than any other field has to offer, theology helps us understand that the nature of that internal source is what Scripture calls the heart. That where internal equilibrium resides, where well-being comes from, Scripture gives it a name and it calls it the heart, the seat of our worship. And our hearts are fallen and ultimately self-worshipping and in need of redemption. Mark 7, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, behavior, behavior, behavior. It's out of the heart come these problematic, unhealthy behavior, behavior, behavior. Coveting, emotion. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, emotion. Slander, pride, foolishness. It's out of the hearts come all these things. But our fallen, but the reality is, and this is where I think biblical counseling and then the truth of scripture helps us gain a broader understanding for the reality of humanity, our fallen hearts aren't the only problem, right? Our fallen hearts aren't the only thing that contributes to our problems in living in all their different, while we live in a fallen world where we're, we also live in a fallen world where we are surrounded by fallen people and are living daily in a fallen environment. First Peter four, verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love this verse. I use it all the time because I feel like the vast majority of people that I counsel, their attitude walking in the door is, something strange is happening to me. Right? That's why they're there. They're like, I need help because something strange is happening to me. And Peter says, it's not strange. Right? Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. This is life in a fallen world. It's no surprise. Our fallen world adds pressure that contributes significantly to our problematic behaviors and thoughts and emotions, and it, can, and it encourages all of them. It, 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 it pushes pressure on and accelerates the downward spiral. And when I say our fallen world, I mean, let me just, just even for a second, we can't go into, the, we don't have time to go deeply into this, but let me just, just for a second, give you a snapshot of what I mean by our fallen world. I mean our fallen bodies. And all the different realities that, that our bodies don't function like they're supposed to. That as we age, things get worse, not better. Right? Our fallen brains that are a part of this fallen world and do not function perfectly and have problems. They do. That contribute to our problem. Now, 
they're not the only simple single problem. Right? And that's where I think sometimes people, people in whatever realm they're in, they just want a silver bullet. There's, tell me the one thing that's wrong with me so I can fix it. Well, the discouraging thing to them is there's not just one thing. <laughs> right? Like you have a fallen body. You do have a fallen brain. And it's got, it has inefficiencies. It has difficulties. There's things that you've experienced that have produced damage. We also have fallen genetics. We do. We're, none of us are born with perfect genetics. Why? Because we've inherited the genetics of our fallen, the, the fallen generations that have come before us. Not only that, but we live in a fallen culture where everything around us it just, it promotes fallenness and brokenness. And we have fallen environments where, where, where life is difficult and work is hard and things make... and, 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 and Everything from pollution to like the, the, the toil of work produce difficulty. We live with fallen friends and coworkers that make things harder, that sin against us. We have fallen families. People that sin. And this is where, you know, every, every like super popular, you know, solution oriented guru out there like just picks one and tries to convince everybody that that's the one problem. Right? Either it's your brain and you need this pill, or it's your parents and you need to, you know, forgive them. Right? No. We have all these problems. Not to mention our, the fallen prince of this world, Satan. And all of these circumstances contribute to our experience and our habitual responses in this world. And they're all in the context of our fallen hearts, the ways our fallen hearts manifest themselves. Now, let me say this. That doesn't mean that there's no compassion in alleviating suffering. To the extent that we can alleviate suffering, we should, right? Like, if you have, if you have a broken bone, and that's contributing to the problem, like setting it and making it so that it can heal, that's helpful. But guess what? It doesn't solve all the problems. But it's compassionate, right? There's, there's absolutely compassion. There's compassion in alleviating suffering. But in our midst of our world, what we want to do, what, 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 we think, what we think we're doing when we're alleviating suffering is taking it all away. But really, what we're doing is just taking a couple of arrows away. Right? But everything else is still there. And living in a fallen world, we can't remove all of them. And so if the hope for our mental health is that, is that we'll take enough arrows away that we'll get healthy, that's a hopeless endeavor. Right? And, is, and that's the, that's the way, that's the, that's the bill that our world is being sold. We can take enough of the pressures away for you to be healthy. And God says it just is a hopeless reality. The truth is, you shouldn't be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. Because it is life in this fallen world. And combined with your fallen heart, it produces all sorts of mess in your heart that produces all sorts of mess in your thoughts and your behaviors and emotions. But thanks be to God that our hope doesn't have to be in the removal of our circumstances, right? God is more powerful than that. He's not less powerful than it. He's more powerful than it. His goodness and his wisdom and his power are oftentimes shown through the ways that he chooses to redeem our suffering. He doesn't just remove it, he redeems it. 
and uses it for the greatest, and uses some of it as the greatest and ugliest trials we face and the weaknesses we possess for our good and our ultimate Christ-likeness. And, and the one thing I, I, I'm, af- I'm afraid, and I, I don't think you necessarily hear this, but some of you, some of you might. I'd be like, okay, Scott, that's fine, but it sounds like you're telling me then that Christians, that if this is a heart problem, this is about a relationship with God, then Christians shouldn't have mental health problems. That is exactly what I'm not telling you. In fact, I'm trying to tell you the exact opposite. What I'm telling you is that Christians are not people who have figured out how to avoid suffering. That's not Christians. Christians are not people who've perfected their inner lives. Look, I have a completely redeemed inner life. And, I, and all this suffering doesn't affect me anymore. That's not Christians. Right? A Christian isn't a person with no suffering. A Christian, isn't a, person, a Christian is not a person who lives in a perfect world. And a Christian is not a person with a perfect heart. Yes, we've been given new hearts. But they're not perfected hearts. Our hearts are this amalgamation of self-worship and God-worship where we have redeemed hearts and fallen hearts. But being a Christian, Christians are are, are people who, who are messed up, scarred by the effects of the fall, tainted by their own flesh, and battling with self worshiping desires who know the one true giver of hope. And through that giver of hope, they are in the process through their lives of experiencing in increasing ways health. Sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness. Their redeemed heart is growing more and more and more as they become more like Christ. Our self-worshipping hearts and our fallen worlds combine to create quite a mess for us to live in. And becoming a Christian doesn't change that. It doesn't take that away. But being a Christian doesn't mean that you don't have to have any mental health struggles in that sense. But being a Christian does mean that you have access to the means of true transformation. You have access to true hope. So living as fallen people with fallen hearts in a fallen world, we ought to expect that we're going to have problems. That means mental health is not the norm. Mental health isn't what people should be experiencing in the world. Mental health is mental health problems are what we should expect to see to all sorts of varying degrees. And the life of the Christian is helping people to grow in Christ's likeness and experience in increasing ways, step by step, more and more inner peace, shalom, well-being. But if true mental health is increasingly having the mind, the peace, the joy, the love of Christ, then we ought to expect it to grow. And to grow in mental health, and my thesis is essentially to grow in mental health is to grow in sanctification. That becoming like Jesus is what true mental health is. That we can't assume that what the world praises as healthy is the true definition of health. And I mean, this isn't even true in the realm of physical health, right? The world portrays all sorts of twisted pictures of what physical health is, right? Like, think of just like the gigantic, like, bodybuilder, right? And you're like, 
I'm not sure that's healthy. Right? Or the anorexic model on the magazine front, right? That our, that our world portrays as a goal. Like, wait, they, they're not even getting the physical part right. right? The world's portraying a, a twisted version of physical health. How in the world would they ever even come close to getting an ideal, right, for the in, inner man, for what inner health genuinely is? The images the world promotes to define as, as mental health aren't completely accurate. A carefree and suffering-free life is oftentimes what is promoted as healthy. Never being sad or broken. Independence. Never being in need. Being the master of one's own fate. God doesn't say, God tells us those things aren't healthy. Pure independence isn't good for you. Thinking you're in control of the world? <laughs> I mean, our experience, let alone scripture, tells us that that produces anxiety. Right? That produces fear. That doesn't produce freedom. And we get our ideas of what health from all sorts of different places, advertisements, Facebook, our own flesh, which don't accurately define health, but the definition of health is Jesus. God become a man. A man who was also a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and perfectly healthy. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen in him his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was a selfless servant. And that's healthy. He gave himself up completely for others. And that's healthy. He was regularly and constantly dependent on his father. Even he could not be independent on this earth. And that is healthy. And he submitted to his own father's will above his own. He did the will of another instead of doing what he thought was best or what he felt was best. And that's healthy. But to become like Jesus, to be truly healthy, we need to be transformed from the inside out. Our world conceptualizes change as something that happens outside in. You fix your circumstances, your body, your skills, your abilities, and then you might be able to achieve well-being. Being focused on the skills and the abilities and the remedies, that, that's the exact same as cleaning the outside of the cup. That's what Jesus called it, right? You're cleaning the outside of the cup. You're coming up with all the abilities and the, um, and the skills, and you're developing it. But the inside of the cup is still desperately needed. This is why Paul asked the Galatians, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And I'm afraid that so often when we pursue health in the way that the world defines it, we are beginning by the Spirit and trying to be perfected by the flesh. If it's faith in Christ and the work of the Spirit of God that, we've, that have saved you and given you a new heart, then we ought to expect that it's faith in Christ and the work of the Spirit that will continue to grow the new heart in us and transform us into Christ more and more from the inside out. I think sometimes we might feel like, well, gosh, 
That seems hard, and that seems like that's going to take a long time. That seems like I'm not exactly sure how that works out. And I, I would say, yeah, it is messy, and it's not simple. But the world's definition of mental health and even the world's ways of going about mental health don't get us any closer. I mean, the, the world hasn't cured any of even its own, the things that defines itself as mental health problems. It hasn't even claimed to cure any of them. It says, hey, we've, we've come up with increasingly better ways to cope with it. But it doesn't even claim to cure them. So the question is, like, where do we put our trust in our definition? And the gospel gives us hope by being honest about who we are. Just the courage to be honest about the fact that we are sufferers in a fallen world and we are sinners with fallen hearts. The gospel gives us hope by showing us that Christ has come to renew our hearts and to redeem our suffering. There's a number of other things we can talk about, but I'm going to leave a couple of the things in your notes for you, but the, the one thing, actually, I want to just, and, and we'll, we'll wrap up with the, the last couple things in your notes, but real but briefly, maybe the next, like, five minutes. I want to read through, in order to just demonstrate this, and hopefully even just bless each one of our souls. In light of this conceptualization of mental health, I want, in light of that, I want you to listen to the words in Romans 8. Because even in light of this and understanding our problems with health that Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of death, or the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. He tells every struggler, no matter how severe what the world calls their mental health problem, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The world wants to stigmatize and even sometimes lock away. The world. And sometimes for physical safety, there's wisdom in those things. But for those who are in Christ Jesus who claim salvation, he reminds us again that there is no condemnation. There's freedom and forgiveness readily available for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And when you think about the law, this could, I mean, you think about it as the, the, the Old Testament law. It's also the law of mental health, right? Do these skills, do these things, and then you'll get healthy. But if you don't do them, you won't get healthy. Right? That's, that's the law in which the world, take these pills or you won't get healthy. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Shalom. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He says to set your mind in the spirit is what brings life and peace. 
He goes on, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in the fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit of God who rose Jesus from the dead dwells in us as believers, and that is what brings life. true life to our fallen bodies and minds. And so he goes on, so then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. It says the spirit of God in us is the spirit of adoption. Our hearts need more than self-sufficiency to be whole and have well-being. We need a relationship. For our, the inner man needs a relationship to be whole and to experience well-being. We're needy, dependent beings, and hope isn't found in the development of skills. While skills can be helpful and can manage, they can't ultimately, and they can manage things, right? Bring about some like behavioral normalcy and Not not even anything wrong with that. They can't bring the health that is found in a relationship with this person. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Because again, we are fallen people in a fallen world. The sufferings of this present time are real. They are difficult. They are complicated. They are painful. And they are confusing but they're also not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in Christ. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see many of, the, of what we call mental health problems and the pains and the struggles we experience should be expected because they are our groaning in this world. This is not our home. This is not the ultimate. This is not the hope. This is not the place where we'll experience the pinnacle and the arrival of pure and glorious health. And in the meantime, we do groan. And, and, and the, I mean, right, the pains of childbirth, like, that's not just like a little ouch, <laughs> right? Like, that is a, like, all-encompassing, overwhelming pain, I've heard, <laughs> right? But, like, like, an overwhelming, like, pain, but it's pain with a purpose. And you endure it differently because of what's at the other end. And the same is true for our struggles that seem, even feel, never-ending in this life. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. We're like, that's fine, but I want to see it. 
I don't need hope. I just want to see it. It's like, no, you need hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, listen to this promise. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't even know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Does that, does that sound like some of how you feel about the mental health struggles in your lives and in the lives of those around you? Lord, not only do I not know what to do, I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know where to start. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words because he knows and feels the difficulty of it. And he who searches hearts knows what's in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Not only is there hope beyond our suffering, there's hope in it. That God will redeem even those most complicated struggles in this world for our ultimate good, even in ways we don't fully understand. He goes on, what then shall we say to these things? We can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Who shall be a char- bring a charge against God's elect? Right? Oh, you're anxious? What a bad Christian. Oh, you're depressed? What a bad Christian. You're captivated by obsessive thoughts? I can't believe you're a Christian. No. In all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not because they just went away, but because in them we are more than conquerors for him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, anything else in all of creation would be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is enough for every struggle in this world. It doesn't bring simple solutions. It doesn't offer quick fixes. It doesn't make things go away, just like that. But it is enough. And through it, God, step by step, takes those who will trust in him and look to him for their inner peace.
for their shalom and makes us more and more, step by step, little by little, more and more like him, more healthy. So how do we do that? I'll just jump real quickly to Romans 12, where Paul calls us to not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by, he says, the renewal of our minds. They be testing me to discern what the will of God is acceptable, perfect. Our minds must be constantly and regularly renewed with truth. Just because it doesn't bring instant, like, change and fixing to a person who's struggling with mental health, doesn't because it doesn't like all of a sudden make things different, doesn't mean it's not what they need. Patiently, graciously, lovingly, reminding and helping to renew their minds lovingly with the truth of the gospel. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology, it's a great place for devotional truths actually, Incredible. He writes this. He says, The New Testament does not suggest any shortcuts. New Testament doesn't suggest any shortcuts. And that's, that's, I think that's the problem. Like, we're, we're, we're discontent with the Bible's definition of mental health because we want something quicker. He says, the New Testament doesn't suggest any shortcuts by which we can grow in sanctification, but simply encourage us repeatedly to give ourselves to the old-fashioned, time-honored means of Bible reading and meditation, prayer, worship, witnessing, Christian fellowship, and self-discipline or self-control. I assume that coming in today, you probably hoped for something like a little bit more like Okay, just give it to me and I can take it and we can be, and I can like, you know, apply it and maybe this will fix all those mental health problems. I know most of you probably didn't know that, but I think there's a part, there's a part of me that whenever I sit down, I'm, I'm just like, okay, what's the key? How do we do it? Well, I know I didn't give you that. I hope that in the midst of the mental health journey you're on and the mental health journey of those around you, no matter how severe, significant, I hope that this afternoon has at least given you a little more hope that, oh yeah, God is that big. And oh yeah, this isn't outside of his realm, but this is about him. So let me, let me pray. Father, thank you again, Lord, for your glorious grace and for your goodness to us and your love for us, God. I pray that you would continue to point us back again and again and again to the power and glory of your word. Thank you for um, yeah, your goodness and grace in so many different ways. God, there are so many different things that contribute to our difficulties and our challenges and our struggles, that we don't understand them all. We, but we cling to you. Lord, will you help us, grant us wisdom, and guide us forward in it. We praise you and thank you for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Have a good rest of your afternoon. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.